This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. What are we going to do with all those useless people? That is the pressing question, according to someone, that we're going to have to deal with for the next 10 to 20 years. What will we do with all the useless people? The man who was speaking is a man named Yuval Harari, and you may wonder who is he and how, why is he important and why should I care what he says. He wrote a book called Homo Deus, which has sold 40 million copies around the world, been translated into 65 languages. He's the darling of leaders in Silicon Valley, um, the World Economic Forum. If I listed the names of people who have endorsed this book, raved about this book, recommended this book, you would be shocked. He has a lot of other things to say, and he's a really good writer. But I want to press into that one question. What are we going to do with all the useless people? So here's what he says. In the coming new world of increasing automation, it's going to lead to a profound shift in the Western world. Some people will adapt and re-engineer themselves and will become, Harari uses this word, gods. Not like gods, but gods. Other people won't adapt, and they will become economically irrelevant. And we will create what he calls a global useless class. Now, before I dismiss his argument, and he's a really bright guy, by the way, really engaging speaker, engaging writer, so I got some nice things to say about him. Before I dismiss the article, his, his argument, I want to say he's on to something. Let's not be shocked. Because if you dabble at all in history, you will see over and over again this pattern. If you study anthropology, if you study different cultures on the face of the earth, you will see this pattern. If you study American history, you will see this pattern. Where some people consign, categorize, and consign other groups of people to a bin of uselessness. Where people, a whole group of people, are devalued dishonored, degraded. Now, we obviously, we go to the Nazis and we think they perfected this with their whole German phrase of life unworthy of life, which led to the killing of over six million Jewish people. But there are other examples. For instance, in our own country, in our own country, which I believe, as Deacon Wells said last week, has such great ideals, great thing to look, look to, aspire to. In our own country, starting in the late 1800s, up until World War II, there was a movement in this country called eugenics, and I invite you to explore it. It's, it's shocking. Some of the big names, some of the professors, some of the smart people, some of the politicians, some of the businesses and the business leaders, some of the foundations with the names like Rockefeller and Carnegie were trying to rid our country of defective, underclass people. First by sterilizing them and then by just killing them. I read the book 
War Against the Weak, Eugenics and America's Campaign to Create a Master Race, not written by a man who's a Christian, but it was, it was chilling. What about today, though? Is there not still a war against the weak? And we all might have our own ideas of who fits into those categories. The poor, victims of gun violence in our large cities, the unborn, persons with disabilities, sometimes people of color, the elderly, inmates, those who are suicidal or have mental illnesses. In overt or subtle ways, they are considered useless. They don't count. They don't matter. They are throwaway people. And we'd rather get them out of sight. Well, the book of Philemon that you heard read, so quiet, so gentle, so kind, so tucked into the back of your Bible, so tiny and small, the smallest of Paul's epistles is like dynamite under that worldview to not only dismantle it and bring it down, but also to clear the ground to plant a beautiful garden and a beautiful way of looking at people and treating people. Look with me at this little book. It's hard to find, so I'll give you the page number. It's page 1,000. And let me just read a couple verses right in the middle, and then we'll go into the backstory. So in verses 10 on page 1,000 in your pew Bibles, the Apostle Paul writing to a man named Philemon about a man named Onesimus. I'll explain those people. Paul says, I appeal to you, Philemon, for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Here's a story of someone that was useless who has become truly useful in ways that Philemon never even thought to consider. Here's somebody who was devalued, who now has value. Here's somebody that didn't count, who now counts. It's a beautiful story rooted in the gospel. The backstory is about, there's three people in this little drama. There's Paul, who's writing the letter. And we know that Paul is in prison. Paul is a man who from his Jewish roots and an encounter with Jesus, Messiah, that changed his life forever and did not create something brand new in him because he already, book of Genesis, would have believed in the image of God that every person is made in the image of God. He would have had that from his Jewish Hebrew faith. But in Jesus, that took it to a whole nother level. And he wants the gospel to sink deeper into us and into churches and into communities. So that's Paul. He's writing this letter. And he writes it to a man named Philemon. Who is he? Well, we know some things about him. He is, first of all, Paul calls him in verse 1, or verse 2, he calls him our beloved fellow worker. I love this guy. He's a leader of the church. The church probably met in his home because that's where Christians met. They didn't have buildings, so they met in homes. They probably met in Philemon's home. And either through, he probably came to know Jesus from a pagan, Gentile background, but his faith in Jesus is very real. 
either through inheritance or through hard work, he's made himself a good life for himself, and he has resources, and he has privileges, and, and he has wealth, and he owns slaves. And one of those slaves is a man named Onesimus. What do we know about Onesimus? He's a slave of Philemon. His name, the name itself, literally means useful. And here I want us to say, Paul's going to use the word useful in two different ways. One is this first way of he's economically useful because he contributes to the economy of the household. He's a cog in the wheel of the household. He's a mechanism. He's a tool. He's something that gets things done for Philemon and his household. As someone has said about Onesimus, he is marked out to be a coin in others' economy. Now, I want us to understand a couple things about slavery in the ancient Greco world that may or may not be different than how we perpetrated slavery in this country. Because there are some differences, because one of the questions we have to ask is, is not why, why there is slavery, because we know all throughout the history of the world, and even in cultures today, there's slavery. People who are forced into indentured servants or slaves, people that are economically bound to somebody, people that are trafficked, this still exists. The question is, what, what happened to undo slavery? So now we think it's reprehensible. We think it's an abomination. Well, we'll get to that. But about slavery in the Greco-Roman world, a couple of things that may or may not be different. First of all, it was much more common. A higher percentage of the people were um, in a lifestyle of slavery, forced into that through various circumstances. It was not limited to one ethnic racial group. Most of the slaves, or many of the slaves, were eventually emancipated, which became motivation to work yourself out of slavery. Some people entered willingly into slavery because it actually helped them get ahead. Now again, these things were different in our country. It still could be oppressive, crushing, and degrading, which is probably why Onesimus ran away. He tried to escape. And somehow, we don't know how, because Paul doesn't give this story, but one of the beautiful themes in the back of this story, in the background, is this idea of the sovereignty of God, that God, that Onesimus runs away, somehow he meets Paul in prison, and he becomes a Christian, and Paul becomes his advocate. So this beautiful backstory of the so sovereignty of God. But, but Onesimus met Paul, and he became a Christian. He became a new creature in Christ. You know, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the old has passed away, the new has come. You've become a new creation. He became a new creation. That's, this whole letter is based on that, the power of God to make people new. And so Paul says in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. I became his spiritual father in Jesus. We are now relatives. We're both in the family of God. So he sends Onesimus back to Philemon, which would normally could have been a disaster because runaway slaves could be beaten, they could be tattooed on their face with the word, stop me, I'm a runaway. For the rest of their lives, they would bear that. But Paul has a better plan. He writes a letter, and he sends it back to Philemon, and we have this letter in our Bibles. It's become part of the canon of Holy Scripture. And notice in verse 8, Paul says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, I could say, look, you got to do this. I'm your spiritual father too. 
you would need to do this. I could excommunicate you. I could do something, you know? And then in verse 9, he says, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. That word appeal, it's, it's tender, but it's also strong. It's firm. I'm fighting for Onesimus. I'm going to bat for him. I'm sticking my neck out for him. I'm putting my relationship with you, Philemon, I'm putting it on the line. I could lose you over this, but I'm willing to take that risk. It is so important. You know, let me just say something. I, I'm 63 now. One of the lessons I wish I would have learned earlier is that sometimes it is worth it to fight for the weak, to make a mess, to stick your neck out. As a younger man, I wish I would have done that more often. But as we're going to see, God is gracious, and he can take even our sins and our mistakes, and he can redeem them. That's the good news of the gospel. So Paul appeals for love's sake, and here's the, here's the crux of his argument in verse 11, which the ESV puts in parentheses. I love the ESV, but I wish the parentheses weren't there. So it says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Onesimus' name means useless. That's the literal, or useful. Again, he was economically useful, but now Paul is saying, Philemon, he's useful to you in ways you had never imagined apart from the gospel. He's useful to you now as a brother, not just a worker in your household. The New Testament is full of this kind of language. Paul loves this kind of language. You once were, but now you are. One scholar I really respect, he sees that same pattern here in Philemon, and I agree with him. I see it there as well. I didn't see it, but when he pointed it out to me, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. Let me give you an example. So in Ephesians chapter 2, here's one of those examples. Paul says, remember, he's talking to the Gentiles. He's saying, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That's what you were. But now, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Every single one of us here that believes in Jesus, you are that story. You were uh, once you were, but now you are. And sometimes we slip back into the once you were, but the Lord Jesus can take us from there over to here. Wake us up. Give us a new start. Forgive us. That's the story that Paul wants Philemon to see has happened in Onesimus. Notice he doesn't say, he doesn't moralize, he doesn't say, you should do this, you should shame on you for not doing this, you need to be nicer because oh, Onesimus is now nicer now. He roots it in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the power of God to change and redeem and to take what was once seemingly useless and to make it truly useful, beautiful, 
That's what he appeals to. And that changes the way we view and value and treat people. And so what Paul is asking Philemon to do is just let what you already know, let what you've already received, just let it sink deeper. Let it color and change how you're going to change, treat Onesimus when he comes back. He doesn't tell him exactly what to do, but he just says, let that sink into you, and then you'll know what to do. Now, he's asking a lot from Philemon. He's not just asking him something mildly inconvenient. He's asking him something that's gutsy, that's costly, that could make him look like a total fool, that could make him look weak, because as the, the father, the man of the household, you don't, you don't let your slaves get away with stuff. This is going to make him look weak. This is going to make him look foolish. It's going to make him look like a pushover. So Paul is asking him to do something costly, but he's basically saying, as I stuck my neck out for you, I want you to stick your neck out for Onesimus. He's not just a cog in your household machine. Look at verse 12. I, I love the way Paul talks about Onesimus. He says, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart and I think of that and go, oh, that's just so sentimental. You know, if Paul was texting, he would have like three rows of big red hearts. Heart, 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 heart. That's how I feel about Onesimus. He's my very heart. And then in verse 16, he says he's no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So... Economically, in the flesh, he's useful, but in the Lord, he's even more useful because he's your brother now. He's not a thing. He's not your property. He's a person. He's beloved. Here's what happens with the gospel. Even the weakest, the poorest, the most seemingly, the, the most vulnerable, the most seemingly useless people become charged with beauty and usefulness in the kingdom of God. There's an article in the New York Times um, that I read a couple weeks ago. It was about talking about the, how the, the fetus, it was a pro-abortion ar article. Um, it was talking about how the fetus, which is just a Latin, the Latin word for baby, um, at six to eight weeks is very and they use the word unimpressive. And therefore, uh, that's an argument for abortion. It's very unimpressive. It just doesn't look like anything. And I was talking to Deacon Will about this, and I said, exactly. Yeah. That's the point. It is unimpressive. Very unimpressive. And you know what? You were unimpressive when you were six weeks old in your mother's womb. You think you were impressive? You think you were like, oh, no, I was doing push-ups, I was doing sit-ups, you know, I was working on my hair, you know. It's like, no, you were unimpressive. And then at the end of your life, if you live really long, I'll just personalize it. If I really live really long, I'm not going to be near as healthy. I'm not going to be near as mobile. I might lose my memory. I might be apparently useless to a lot of people. That's where we were. That's where we started. That's where we all started. That's where we're all headed if we live long enough. That's in the flesh, Paul says, but there's something even more. There's, there's in the Lord. 
in the Lord, spiritually speaking, all of us were unimpressive before Jesus brought him to himself. Now, let me, let me be really clear. God really, I think God delights in impressive things that people do, creative things, beautiful things, gifts of skill, and gifts of entrepreneurship, and hard work, and diligence. So I'm not saying that. That is really impressive that human beings can just do so many things with their gifts and their talents and start businesses and, and, and make money and, and help people and all kinds of things. And that's, imp- that's, that's impressive stuff. But fundamentally, apart from Christ, we were all unimpressive. The Bible uses these words. We were sick, we were dead, we were lost. That's not very impressive. But Jesus sought you. Jesus bought you. He paid the price with his own blood because he wanted you to be with him. He made you alive, and now he calls you to live that out in how you view and treat people. I read a beautiful book um, in the last year called Perfectly Human. It's by a history professor named uh, Dr. Sarah C. Williams. And she writes about a pregnancy with, I believe it was her third or fourth child, named Syrian. And the doctors told Sarah Williams and her husband that the baby had abnormalities and she should terminate the pregnancy immediately. But they weren't positive, but that was what they were recommending and actually pushing for. And she did not do that. She carried, she decided, made a decision, her and her husband made a decision to carry the baby to full term and then to see what would happen. The doctor, in one of her doctor visits, the doctor asked, so why did you decide not to terminate the pregnancy? Was it some kind of religious principle? And Dr. Williams writes, but she didn't say this, religious principle? My daughter is not a religious principle. She's my daughter. We love her. But what she said was, We have a baby that's alive now. We're going to welcome her into our family. Maybe all the time I will get, and I want to spend it well. The doctor said, what have you told your other children? We told them the truth, the medical truth, that we're going to lose her. They helped us give her a name and love her. The children did. Dr. Williams writes, this is not my normal conversation with doctors. I was expecting her to shuffle papers and stop questioning me, but she kept asking questions. What have you named her? Syrian. It means loved one. It's a unique name because she's a unique person. The doctor began to cry, and then she said, what a beautiful way to treat people. What a beautiful way to treat people. You know at Res, if you've been here long enough, you know we're sinners. You know your leaders are sinners. But one of our highest ideals, one of our passions, is to create a culture that manifests that beautiful way to treat human beings. Let me tell you, practically, I mean, there's a lot of ways you do it. You're doing it already. I don't, some of you are already involved in this. It's just walking beside loving people that the world might deem 
useless or yes, less useful or not worth your time, and you're investing in these people. And I, I just, as a pastor, I get to see that, and I just want to say how, how much that delights us. But three of the really practical ways we do that is if you make like a little arch, a little arch like an umbrella, like an awning, and three ministries under that umbrella of how we're trying to live this out. So we have our Sanctity of Life team, which you heard about last week, a baby bank, praying at abortion clinics, things like that, starting a new clinic in the Austin neighborhood of Chicago. So Sanctity of Life replanted, which works with, uh, and every time I say that word, Sarah Roney says woo. So, um, so works with families who have adopted or, or are doing foster care. And then our newest ministry, Thrive, which is a ministry to families 